So my friend, you know, she had this vibrant orange hair. We tried to look as Russian as we thought with our little art degrees, and and she comes in all just upset, and she said, "I can't believe what just happened. Two soldiers grabbed me and started escorting me into the station." This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In this episode, we speak with Mark Vegas, who travelled on the Trans-Siberian Railway in the late 1980s. His story tells of trouble with officialdom, the unexpected kindness of strangers and the beauty of a Soviet Union on the cusp of major change. Mark has taken a stunning set of photos on his journey, which you can view at our show notes page at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 59. I really recommend you take a look. If you want to help us out with the costs of hosting and running the podcast, then from the price of a cup of coffee a month, you could really make a difference. Just click on the support the podcast menu option at coldwarconversations.com. Thank you so much to our latest patrons, including Daniel Neville, Brendan, Lloyd Watkin and Tim Brown. Now, back to today's episode, where we start with Mark and his friend in East Berlin. Mark, welcome to Cold War Conversations. Thank you, Ian. This is really an honor. I appreciate it. Well, no, that, the, the honor's mine. I mean, I'm intrigued by your story. When you got in contact with me, I haven't spoken to uh, anybody who's done the Trans-Siberian Railway, and particularly um, during the Cold War as well. Yeah, it was an interesting time for me. I was, I'm going to say, 27 years ago. To I was 27 years old and actually went 30 years ago to this date, February 20th. So exciting to talk about this, but I have to recall some of the things that did happen to me. So eager to share with you. Yeah, no. no. And well, what a coincidence that I'm actually chatting with you on the date that you did the trip as well. That that's That's incredible. So just to go back a little bit in the story, what made you think about going on the Trans-Siberian Railway in the, uh, not the middle of the Cold War, but the latter stages of the Cold War? Well, I was fascinated with our political enemies. I loved Russian art, and I'm a bit of a train geek. I wanted to sit on a train. I traveled throughout Europe, and I thought, I want to go through Russia and see what I'm going to find. And didn't know really what that would look like. Right. And had you traveled to the Eastern Bloc before? I had gone through the corridor from West Germany into West Berlin. I had done that several times and then day trips into East Berlin. I'll just start the trip from East Berlin because there was always an interesting sensation that went through me and other people that I you know, spoke to when you went from West Berlin into East Berlin. But this time I'm going further into the East. So that was kind of on top of my head as well. Right. And was it a direct train from East Berlin to Moscow? Were there some changes? It was a direct uh, train and got in there at nighttime and 
it was, I, I'm going to say it was about a day and a half, but I slept, I slept through a bit of that and got into Moscow like that afternoon. So that would have been the 21st right. of February. Okay. And presumably there were passport checks as you crossed into Poland and then Poland to the Soviet Union as well. Exactly. And a lot of that was probably already part of my um, itinerary. You had to get everything set up before you could actually go through. They wanted to know the dates, the times, you know, which all of a sudden it's like, okay, your life is going to become very regimented. Yes, I can imagine. It was it was very regimented. There was no such thing as spontaneity, I think, if you were on one of these trips. Well, you know, if I can go back to the East Berlin station, I want to just kind of get a sense, give you a sense of that feeling like actually walking into a, the set of a film noir. It, it really felt like my eyes turned to black and white. The lights were dim. There were, it, it felt, even though obviously I wasn't in the Second World War, I did feel like I was going into a war situation with all the military and just people on the platform and just trying to understand what am I going into? And there was just this sort of oppressive chilling feel always in the East. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, when I went over there, it certainly lived up to that uh, spy who came in from the cold image. Exactly. And so I like to start with that sort of tension. And then it went to almost uh, black comedy because I'm thinking, as we said earlier, there's rules, you know, don't step up out of the white line. And I noticed uh, a couple things that I wanted to share. Right. Well, go ahead. So a lot of military presence, the loudspeakers that, you know, in, in German, that harsh, you know, it's a rattling speaker sound. And it felt very Orwellian. And just to see these soldiers everywhere. And I notice people at like a food kiosk getting their supplies ready. And you have to imagine clusters of Eastern Europeans, they carry these big nylon bags with two handles. And I don't know if that was their suitcase or if they were shopping in the East Berlin. But so if you can kind of picture that. So anyway, the train, the all aboard is called in, in German. I don't remember my German's a little weak. Um, but you get the sense that the train, it's not our train, but another train ahead of ours is getting ready to go out, probably towards Warsaw. And I see these guys scrambling around trying to get their food together at the kiosk and probably propped or whatever you could get. And all of a sudden the train closes up and you got to imagine lots of Eastern Europeans in these track suits. They like to wear track suits and these plastic shower sandals. And it, this guy goes scrambling after the train as it starts leaving the station. And he's grabbing onto the back of the train, holding on for dear life. And I'm thinking, my God, he's going to get shot because I'm thinking strict regimental control. And if that doesn't kill him, he's going to get crushed when the train goes through the the pavilion or whatever, the structure of the train station. And you see the platform agent waving a, a wand. They had little wands to tell the engineer. So the train skids to a halt. This guy, though, he, you got to imagine him running towards the train. His shoes are flying in the air. He's dropping everything he just purchased. He, they seemed kind of drunk. 
so it's kind of had a slapstick quality and then him holding onto the back of the train and finally the train screeches to a hall they shove him in and the guy behind him throws his whatever he was had dropped train door shuts and uh East German conductor, you know, screams at him, and then the train is heading off, and everybody, including the soldiers, were all laughing at this situation. So that kind of that kind of broke the ice, and that's why I called it black comedy. Well, yeah, yeah, it sounds just like something out of Laurel and Hardy, exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean that that made it that kind of flipped that tension that I was feeling. So, uh, and I did travel with a, a partner, so you know, we were kind of communicating back and forth what's going on trying to figure out this whole yeah. trip and and when you're on the train um did anybody talk to you oh everybody wants to talk to you but that was the problem because i didn't know any russian and so what's interesting is the train to moscow this is probably one of my favorite stories and i call this like that that piece of communism that was human to human because after the soldiers and the regimental, you know, that sense of regiment, we get on the uh, car and get into our berth. And, you know, it's a bunk bed. And then so two bunk beds on either side of the berth. And, you know, one's a day couch. And then it's at night, it's a, a bed. So anyway, we're getting um, in meeting. There were two Russian women. Um, I believe they're from Moscow. And there was an older woman. She seemed a bit more urbane and sophisticated. She spoke French. I remember her saying she danced in the ballet. And she was sort of the translator because my friend spoke French as well. And in the meantime is this other woman who looked, I'd say, more like a middle-aged housewife from Moscow, Mm -hmm. if you could picture that. Just simple, very curious, shy, but just lovely, you know. And so we were just trying to figure out a little bit about each other. And the one woman the I'll just say the housewife kept asking, well, you're from America. You're so rich. Why kind of like, why aren't you on this train? And remember I'm, I'm wearing, I'm, I'm just trying to blend in. I'm wearing drabby clothes. And the plan was I'm not going to be doing laundry for six weeks. So I'm just going to throw my clothes away. And I tried to look as best like a Russian as possible. I had the fur hat, I had the wool jacket and just, kind of gray shabby clothes but i had holes in my socks and this woman wanted to know well why if you're from uh a wealthy country you know kind of why why aren't you rich and anyway so the story i love sharing is the whole time we're talking and there were breaks between conversation we went to sleep that night but the whole time we're talking this russian housewife takes out her knitting needles and she's just knitting away and as we pull into the station and, you know, we're collecting our belongings and sort of saying our farewell, she pushes something into my hands. And then the French speaking Russian says, she says, you will need these for your trip and welcome to Russia kind of thing. And she pushes these hand knitted socks that she had made for me. And I was so touched by that, but it's like, no, thank you. <laughs> I felt kind of bad that I did not give her something equal. Maybe I did, but I just thought, what a lovely gesture. And the irony is that these socks were red. So I'm like, I caught my red communist socks. So that was, yeah. Well, that's an amazing story. I mean, I think that that's, that's one of the things is the sort of generosity of, of people 
in sort of very unexpected you know fashions there's there's an interest in you because you come from the united states well yeah and that's that's where i thought so all of a sudden the political propaganda that i was raised with i'm from the midwest originally and you know the russians are the enemy i love the olympics i still think the olympics you know during the cold war were the best but at any rate it's like i'm meeting the human face of communism and that sense of community was shared on that train all the time yeah yeah what what year was this i should have asked you this right at the start no so it would have been it would have been 1989 so uh february 20th 1989 and then the train got into moscow february 21st but i like to call the whole stretch the the trans-siberian trip i do remember seeing the suburbs of moscow i do kind of have that memory so but i don't think that we actually boarded the trans-siberian until after dark what did you think of of moscow of what you saw in that one day it was expansive i was amazed that there was no traffic i was amazed to see there were no stoplights in a major capital city uh there were I guess they would be police officers and what they look like American phone booths, not your cast iron <laughs> red phone booths in Britain, but they would actually conduct the lights. And there was these big expansive roads. I went to red square and hung out there for a while and just sort of observed. I went through this beautiful department store that was just very ornate and it almost had a Baroque Baroque, quality and the subways oh my god the subways were just incredible and i know that the subways also served i believe as bomb shelters or whatever during the second world war but they were absolutely fabulous and then one of the things i love about russia was there's this grandeur and then there was always this decay and i i love that quality i loved that quality Sadly, I've never been to Moscow. It's very much on my list, and the uh, the photos I've seen of the underground stations um, make the uh, London Underground just look slightly, uh, I don't know, pokey, let's say. <laughs> well, I enjoyed the London Underground, and to get down into the um, Moscow Underground, it was deep in a couple of the escalators that took you in. It was like a, a ride, you, like they were old and rickety and wooden and they went fast. <laughs> so it's like I, yeah. I felt like I'm almost in a free fall when I got on some of those escalators going down station. So w when you arrive at the uh, the train, are you given any instructions as to how to, you know, what, what to do during the journey or anything like that? All the instruction that I was given was given to me by the travel agent in West Berlin. And he had actually advised. So we bought a one-way passage to Beijing. And then the tricky thing was getting the train back. And so that meant getting to Beijing and buying a ticket, which was a, a, another ordeal. But I was told, don't take photographs from bridges or be careful on platforms. Don't take pictures of military personnel or installations. Even if you're on the train, don't do that. That's verboten. So, it, so no photos of trains either, presumably, or railway infrastructure, which must be rather difficult if you're traveling by train. 
Exactly. So I took pictures and just thought, well, we'll see what happens in the spirit of Glasnost and Perestroika and openness, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was going to be your excuse, was it, Mark? <laughs> yeah, I don't know that they would ask me questions, but I did kind of, <laughs> I, after a couple of days of feeling um, a paranoia, I thought, well, I'll just look like a tourist and I'll try to be like out in the open about what I'm doing. I can't imagine taking a photo of a, the engineer of the, the train or, but there was always sort of that backdrop feeling of, am I overstepping? And well, kind of, as we say, if it ain't broke, don't fix. And I just kept thinking, well, I'll just always show that I have a camera around my neck and I'll just push as far as I feel comfortable with. But I did notice people kind of checking me out and and always made me kind of wonder, am I being shadowed? Did you ever feel, did you ever confirm that or not? Well, that's the thing. How do you confirm paranoia? Um, I do have a couple of photos of one guy that always seems to be in, in the lurking about smoking cigarettes, watching me and always talking to somebody else. And whether he was another tourist or whatever, but I could not tell you. And then one of the first stops, I believe it was Omsk, cannot remember, but is when the train came in, it had, I want to say, a three or four hour stop. And it was very bizarre because almost like a Russian travel agent came on, knew everything about us, our names, and gave us some ideas of, well, go get some food for the train and you might want to go see this and that. And I'm thinking, we're, we, we were just puzzled. Like, how did they know this? Obviously, you know, they're aware we're on that train and we're going through Russia. Bit unnerving. This is a bit unnerving, but it's like, sure, we'll take your suggestion and go get some some food for the train. Your photos that you shared with me are absolutely stunning. I mean, I've emailed you and I've said you should do a book, but they are visually fascinating and they just capture some just some great images of the Soviet Union, uh, probably in a in a time of change, because this is perestroika through, you know, or halfway through perestroika before the, um, you know, the fall of the communist party well exactly and first thanks so much for um saying that about the photos and my joke was going to be yeah i've had to wait 30 years to do this but just hearing you i I do feel like now these are history because they've been kind of in the back you know in my storage unit and or my basement and i've kept thinking i want to do something with these and when you actually suggested that you know you got me re-inspired to kind of talk about these photos again so i i'm going to put some things up on instagram and and we will share links to uh, mark's instagram account so you can see those photos and i'm sure uh you will agree that uh, they are pretty amazing photos certainly in my view and i'm sure they will be in your view as well so so mark um omsk was that the first stop on the uh trip uh so that's the first, there were many stops and, you know, you're going day and night and most of the stops were maybe 20, 30, 40 minutes and you just would get out, stretch. And then I usually found myself at the front of the train trying to. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people 
who lived and experienced the Cold War um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. You know, just look at the engine and try to figure out, or just looking at the rail yards or the beautiful stations, you know, and just observing people. That just was my little trip I did on the platform or my little experience. Right, right. And what were the uh, the staff like on, on the train? They were very friendly some you know some were stodgy the the first okay so there's another story now that i'm telling the the i caught uh the tug of war between the uh provenities and the russian soldiers so my friend who had a german wool looked like a military coat it was just german fire feuerwehr's fire department and she had sewed on some soviet buttons but you know she had this vibrant orange hair we tried to look as Russian as we thought with our little art degrees. And at any rate, um, I'm on the train and she, we usually would find each other back at the compartment and she's not there. And I'm thinking, well, maybe she's gone up to the dining car or whatever, but usually we had a plan and she comes in all just upset. And she said, I can't believe what just happened. Two soldiers grabbed me and started escorting me into the station and they were talking in Russian. And luckily, the Provenitsi came and grabbed her. And she's like, they're playing tug of war in these. So the is Provenitsi are the men. There's usually two stewards on each train. So the men were Provenitsi, and we had two Provenitsis. Right. And she's, my friend's like, they're playing tug of war. So it's two soldiers and two Provenitsis, and she's the rope in between. And they're screaming, let her go or whatever. <laughs> Eventually, they, they let, her, let her go to get back onto the train. So obviously, she came back very upset. And I'm like, I had to think, if, I, if she actually did get detained, I would have had no idea what was going on. There was no ability to communicate. Um, it's one of those things where you, you lay at night and you wonder, you know, you get, you can so much stress what could have happened and luckily nothing happened. Wow. That must've been really scary. And people forget, you know, nowadays that you've got, you, you are basically completely out of communication, you know, that you haven't got a mobile phone or anything. You can't, you can't, even if you got out at a station, you probably can't dial internationally. Um, from a, we can't even say you can't. I could say spasiba. I could say a few things, but how would I explain? I've lost my friend <laughs> at, at the train station. Yeah. Where is she? Yeah, yeah. Because you know, you'd be on the train. The train would move off, and suddenly your friend's not there. I mean, wow, wow. Yeah, it was like a, it was like a scene from a Hitchcock film. It was just very, um, it was very unsettling. Yeah. And I don't know. I I don't know if you've ever heard the movie uh, Trans Siberian, which um, 
I think it kind of depicts, there's a scene that actually like that happens. And some, they did kind of use my photos for, even though it's not necessarily of the same time frame, because I think that movie came out in 2008 or whatever. But there is a scene where a couple gets separated, and, you know, but it's more in the modern age. But, you know, that was that was just sort of interesting to see that movie because I felt like, God, they really did kind of recreate, even though it was a, a suspense thriller kind of movie, they really did. The director created that, that sense of what uh, the trans Siberian was like, because he apparently was on the train the same time that we were. And this friend of mine actually did the costume for that and had asked if I could borrow the photos to get a sense of that. Um, that style on wow. the train. So, yeah. So another thing, if you like, I we did stop also in Irkutsk near the Baikal Sea, and we stayed at like an in-tourist, which was the state-owned hotel, mm-hmm. which would have been their version of a five-star, <laughs> <laughs> which was interesting. If you, you know, kind of like, I don't know if you're familiar with old Star Trek, but it felt... it. That was one of those qualities of the Soviet Union that their modernism was like our 60s or 70s, you know, our sense of style and design. So I was in, I was there for, I believe, two nights or three nights, and I did get to go see a little historic town called Lisbianka, I think is how it's pronounced, and just go to the shores of the Baikal Sea, which was incredible. Right, because isn't that one of the largest inland seas in the world? Yeah, and I was told don't share too many facts, but I love the fact that it's 20% of the world's fresh water. It has freshwater sponges and seals. It's the only place. It's like one of the deepest freshwater lakes, and it's one of the oldest. They think it's 25 to 35 million years, and I got to walk on it. Right. So it was frozen at the time, I presume, unless you have uh, otherworldly powers. Well, I will tell you about that in another podcast. But yeah, I did walk on water. And, uh, you know, the thing that I liked is when we did stop, kids were always very curious. I think they were looking for souvenirs. They knew three German words, Kaugummi, Kugelschreiben, and Aufkleber. So they wanted bubblegum ballpoint pens and stickers, peel off stickers. And they would always kind of show up and be at a distance. So I had some really great subjects. I felt like I'm not going to get arrested for taking pictures of kids, but hopefully that's not too creepy (laughs) for the kids. But they followed us. They were fun. Yeah. And you told me about the story of Uli and his fur hat. Yeah. Uli, and luckily I found his name in my notes and I wished I had a photo of him he he treasured this fur hat and he you know we got to the point where we were just talking back and forth and not knowing what each other was talking about there's a lot of hand gestures and he's showing me this hat and i'm like god it smells <laughs> it smells like a wet dog and he's just so proud of it and you can imagine the russian fur hats and so i didn't know if it was the fur was it was animal fur i didn't know if it was dog or wolf but what i finally pieced together and then it was like four days and the aha moment of it he was trying to tell me that he was getting married and that was his bride-to-be's gift and he was so proud to be showing this hat off and he was taking the train 
across Siberia to drive some kind of military truck back towards, um, I don't know if he got on in Moscow, but in one of the large stations, he would be driving a military vehicle back and he would be wet at that same time. Wow. So it was a nice little story. Young kid. He was like a boy soldier, but really, really yeah. a sweet kid. Yeah. And who who else did you meet on, on, on your travels? Did you speak to any of the other passengers? Well, you try to speak and then heading east was predominantly um, Eastern Bloc people. I'm going to say they're Russians, most of them. There were probably obviously Poles on, you know, closer to Moscow and well in East Berlin. But um, I think there was a few, we called them the um, platform Olympiads. There was like a couple that would go out and run back and forth and they had the nice sportswear. I'm like, they must be from Sweden or something. They looked like they were from the West, but we didn't communicate with them. So it was just broken, weird, crude hand signs and communication and sharing of food and showing pictures of books and basically like that. You know, I think we probably had a map to say where we're from and point there and just a couple books. And they were always curious. And even though there was a communication barrier, there was, there were some suspicious travelers, but most people just kind of left us alone and um, would say hello or acknowledge us. There was always, I don't remember seeing any empty berths. Um, I don't know that I was walking the whole span of the train, and but it always seemed, you know, because there was probably cars that were not sleepers. It was interesting when you'd go between the cars, it was like going into an ice box. It was very loud and there was, you know, you could feel the Siberian cold between the cars, but within the actual train compartments, it was almost too hot. You could practically sit around in your underwear and in your uh, track shoes or whatever your <laughs> bad samples and eating on the train was there a restaurant car that you went to or, or not you know it's funny i do remember eating caviar i don't remember going to the restaurant car that often maybe too timid to order didn't know what to eat i don't remember if we just bought food on the platforms but you know i do remember that one place where the the uh a con- <laughs> excuse me, the tra- travel agent showed up. I do remember buying like some meats and some breads. Um, so we probably just supplemented our diet on the train at these platform food kiosks. Yeah. Cause I can't imagine they would have an English translation menu or anything like no, that. No, no, so. no. But they did have copies in English of um, a family. What was it? There's a lot of propaganda in English, like a family that, telling their story about how bad the American government was. Oh, really? Uh, well, there were sort of like magazines or things that you could pick well, up. This is like the paper, you know, was a, maybe they put it there because we knew we, they, we would be in that car. I still have that book somewhere, but it was like the, the terror of Americans or something weird. Like, you know, the title is about a family that's has connections to Russia and how they're terrorized by our government. That was in our, in our train birth. And so what was the the final destination of of the train? Well, the final destination ended up being Beijing, but I just wanted to be on a train and I love train travel any chance, but you know, I felt like the Western trains are a bit more hermetically sealed. Whereas this 
this felt a little bit more um, rustic. And I'm sorry, I lost track of your question. <laughs> Could you ask me again? No, no, I like. I, I'm I'm smiling at the the um the description as rustic of of the train. I'm just uh, picturing it. I mean, so w- was it clean or 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 not? Um, not by most standards. It was it was pleasant enough. The bathroom that was another that was a whole other story. And you know, after getting to Beijing, and so getting back to that question, Beijing was the the destination and then there was travel throughout Mongolia but compared to the Chinese trains um, the Russian cha- trains were pretty immaculate the Chinese trains were not so great when you arrive in in Beijing do you, you travel around China then do you yes we did and that was funny we were just filthy and tired and hadn't bathed well we went to we went to the in tourists so we probably were a bit more freshened up but just kind of filthy travelers and we get off and we go try to find a five-star restaurant just to figure out what the heck we're going to do and how we're going to get the ticket back and it's hilarious because a film crew came up and thought we were like some western celebrities getting off the train and so we got to be in some funny little chinese commercial promoting whatever hotel that was brilliant i'll have to dig that out on youtube (laughs) (laughs) i I never could find it i don't i don't know but uh it was it was funny because it's like well what are we going to do now and it's like i guess we're going to be in a commercial and i mean as far as money and stuff like that did were you with travelers checks or had you cashed it in and got a load of rubles or how were you you know, surviving? Well, the cost of living, the biggest cost was the train itself. So as I said earlier, that was all pre-booked. And even the hotel, the in-tourist hotel, food was inexpensive. But you did have to itemize kind of what you purchased. And you had to kind of show, you know, you had to have not necessarily a ledger, but they wanted to see receipts and they wanted to see what money you had which um, that kind of becomes a story in itself because I did make some money on the, on the train kind of illegally. Well, we definitely want to hear about this, Mark. Come on, spill the beans. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's pretend I go to Beijing, do my travel, get back on the train. And what's interesting about the train itself is that they change gauges on on the western side you know the 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 train gauge is different in um ussr i don't know about now but it's it's a wider gauge so you know you the trains kind of parked there they lift the whole carriage up and as they're doing that I, i recall being like on the chinese side there was basically like a duty free shop although they didn't really have duty free but i'll just say it's like a tourist shop and it's like, well, I don't really need the souvenirs and the food that they had. I didn't really care for. But these West German guys, so this would be on the return with more Western travelers. These young guys buy up all this Chinese vodka, right? And that night, they drink it. And the next morning, they're all puking. They're sick. And I'm kind of like following them around because they're throwing all their vodka away. 
and some of the bottles were still full. And I'm thinking, I could turn this into some money. And the reason I really wanted, because the, the ruble wasn't really worth very much, but the travel agent said, if there's any way possible that you could get a ticket on the east side to go into Leningrad or St. Petersburg, do it. So that was sort of the momentum for me to like, I, I want to buy a ticket. I want to get the money in rubles so I didn't have to go change money because if you did it legally, it was exorbitant. It was a really a bad exchange mm -hmm. rate. So I'm getting all these bottles of vodka and throwing them into my suitcase. I had a backpack. And then on the return is this babushka and she's just kind of heavy set, you know, she's the stereotypical babushka and she sees that vodka and she lights up and she wants that vodka. So I can't remember how we broke the deal, but she pulls out a lot of uh, rubles out of her cleavage and I give her a couple bottles and I'm thinking I got passage to uh, Leningrad and we probably drank a bit. And then she pulls out a big chunk of Speck, or that's German for fat. It's just a big wad of fat, carves off a big chunk, and I'm like, yet, yet, spasiva. But it's kind of like, okay, I have to eat this. So, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that. It's actually quite bland, but psychologically, I'm thinking, I don't want to eat that. But that's kind yeah. of how we. But after a, after a few vodkas, it probably doesn't taste so bad. Well, I wasn't drinking a whole lot at that part in the day. <laughs> I think maybe one or two. In Chinese vodka during Perestroika was pretty bad, but I'm sure the Russians enjoyed it. And even like when I was in uh, Irkutsk, I'm backtracking on my story. But I remember this guy coming out of his dacha. I'm just walking the streets, and he just comes up to me like we're neighbors. He starts yammering in, in Russian and he takes his index finger and he pops like his thyroid gland in his throat and makes this popping sound and he's like shows me this little stamp and he's like vodka and so he's indicating I got my ration of vodka I'm going to get drunk which was pretty funny because I'm like okay prost <laughs> anyway I was not able to get the uh, ticket to the to St. Petersburg or Leningrad, but that when, when we came through the border. So when I'm coming back and I'm thinking, cool, I have all this money. And then it's like, well, now we got to go through the Russian checkpoint. And I rem remember they call it the frontier. When I think of the frontier, I think of cowboys and Indians and Westerns. But so there you can see the iron curtain between Russia and China, just barbed wire out in the middle of nowhere. There's a huge concrete, edifice that says ccp cccp and i think okay and but you got to realize i was really happy to be going back to back west towards through russia and get back home i was burned out i was really tired um so i have all of my black market rubles in my boots right and all of a sudden the train stops and i see soldiers i see a i don't know the ranking, but I'll just say commissar, a, a military um, attache, and he has two soldiers on each side. They have a sniffer dog. They're armed, and they're going through each berth or each compartment, and they're going in and making sure everybody has their papers. And I give him my passport, and he's looking at everything, and then all of a sudden they start tearing through my backpacks, and I'm thinking – 
okay, no big deal. You don't have rubles in your backpack. You've gotten rid of all the vodka. Um, and then he starts telling me to take off clothes, not down to the skin, but he wants my jacket and he goes through my jacket and he finds a little slip of paper and he starts, he gets very dramatic and, you know, in Russian, what is this? And he's showing it to me. Well, it wasn't my little piece of paper. It was my friend's and she had been scribbling little notes, probably what our money was. But he kept asking me, why do you have this? What is this? And I'm starting to think, oh, God, here it goes. I'm in trouble. But I didn't even know what he was looking at because I didn't know. I, she had borrowed the code and slipped those notes into my pocket. Right. So I don't know if they thought we were spying and sneaking out coordinates. I don't know what they thought. But all I can think is I've got all these rubles in my socks and I'm starting to sweat and I'm starting to shake. And right when I think it's curtains, he just thrusts my paper back at me, my my passport and the visas and all that. And he leaves. But I'm just standing there trembling like, God, what just happened? Like that was a close call. You know, so you'd always get these reminders that you got to be careful. You know, it's like, oh, one part of me is like, oh, it's not as bad as they say. And then the reality would check back in with, oh, God, you overstepped. You could have been in big trouble. But yeah. nothing really happened in yeah. that situation. And as you say, you'd just disappear, wouldn't you? I mean, who who would know that you'd been? Yeah, I don't even know if I, like, wrote home and told my parents, you know, because back then, like you said, you couldn't just call. You couldn't. You couldn't just, it was expensive to make an international call. I think I probably wrote a letter and say, oh, I'm going to go to Russia. And they're probably, they're thinking, okay, good luck. You know, you couldn't really check in. And then our, our counterparts in West Berlin knew, but uh, we weren't really that well situated to get lost in the middle of the Soviet Union, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And what was the, the rest of the journey like back on the, uh, the train? Any, uh, interesting incidents you want to share well the travel itself is you're kind of in like a cocoon of warmth and it's almost too too warm um and by that time we were so worn out i just wanted to kind of sit and relax and what happened is after the whole thing with the um with the money in my pockets the illegal rubles, I'm sorry, in my boots. I'm thinking, well, I don't think I'm going to have time to get the uh, tickets to Leningrad. And so I think actually by the time we got back to Moscow, I still had those rubles. And I went to a store and I'm looking at like, well, I don't know what souvenirs I'm going to buy because, you know, I still have to travel. So I ended up buying a case of champagne and just kind of gave it to everybody that I either knew or some of the people that came onto the train. So it would have been actually, I'm jumping ahead a bit, um, getting closer to Berlin, but we just all kind of had a bottle of champagne. So, you know, there was kind of a celebratory mode mood on the way back Mm -hmm. it was just nice to be heading back and i do remember when you when we got to moscow you had to go to another station 
let's now recall it better. You had to go to the other station to get the ticket to go to St. Petersburg. And I was so tired. And that night, you know, after we're back on the train heading back west, both of my legs cramped up. It felt like I got attacked with somebody with a hammer. My calves just seized up. And it's from being on the train for so long. It's like, you know, I love sitting on the train and looking out the window. It's like watching a a film go by, even if it's just a big, broad landscape. It's just a beautiful landscape and very relaxing. But yeah. anyway, so the yeah. Uh, what 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 was the? I mean, you must have sort of seen villages that looked like they'd been unchanged from the Middle Ages or something like that. Oh yeah, like Doctor Zhivago and just beautiful little little almost like vignettes of what you would think of Russia in the middle of the winter in Siberia, little villages. And then, you know, when we did go to Irkutsk and got off there, we did go to a traditional village, Lisvyanka. I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but yeah, just the, the ornate, um, these little cabins with just the beautiful carved um, detail it was crude, but it was so elaborate at the same time. And I do remember at one point, this is actually heading east, but as I said, it's sparking memories. But the train came to a stop in the middle of what I thought was nowhere. And there was just a little village and you could see these little houses. And I'm thinking, well, why are we stopping here for so long? But it gives me the chance to look at these buildings along the track. And eventually what had happened is the train hit a car. so. I don't know if the car stalled on the tracks or whatever, but I do remember just being able to sit there and study these structures and just think, wow, people live in these. And they're like, you know, I kind of romanticize. I always thought when I was a kid, I'm going to go build a cabin somewhere in the mountains. And it, it did feel like, you know, early 20th, late 18th century um, existence out there. Beautiful little yeah. structures. Yeah. Like you say, like something out of a Tolstoy novel. Yeah, exactly. I think I think you uh, you you said to me when when you were in when you arrived back in Moscow, um, somebody came up to you in Red Square. Oh yeah, so there was time to go th- back to Red Square. So th- going towards China, there was more time, but it's like, well, it was near the s- station, and just kind of walking around, but you have to realize that my enthusiasm had worn off. So I wasn't trying to take too many photos and this guy comes up. So obviously I looked like I was from the West, even though I thought I had a pretty good costume, but he's basically in broken English asks if I can smuggle a letter out for him. And I'm kind of looking around and I'm thinking, what just happened with the rubles? Like, do you, you know, and I had to make that split split second decision. I can't remember. I think he may have said, well, I'm going to walk away and then I'm going to come back and just hand it off. Cause I don't want to look so obvious. And I'm thinking, what am I giving, get myself into? Um, but I, I, I took it out. I don't remember where it was supposed to go to. I didn't open it. Pardon me. Wanted to open it, but I wouldn't have been able to read it. And where I come from, it's illegal to open people's mail. So I didn't open it. So you've no idea who he was or where it was uh, being sent to. I do not know what it was about. I do know, though, um, 
getting getting a letter out was complicated and it could have simply been that it was just too expensive. I think if you mailed something within Russia or the Eastern Bloc, I think it was uh inexpensive, but that you know, that's kind of a way to curtail out outreach to the West. So I'm, I'm going to just go with it was, it probably wasn't anything incendiary, but who knows? It was probably simply too expensive or it would draw attention. Who knows? He could have been some major secret agent who was looking for another way to communicate with the West. We'll never know, Mark. We won't. <laughs> Unless he <laughs> um, sees his picture on the, on, you know, on the red square in Moscow, but yeah. I doubt it. Yeah. Um, of of your 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 trip on the Trans Siberian, what what would you say was the most memorable event aside from uh, your friend being hauled off the train and your uh, chat with the border guards? Well, I don't know if I should mention this. This is kind of weird, but I got hit on on the Trans Siberian. Now, there's not many people that can claim that, Mark. So go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> Oh my God. So um, I you, there 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 are the train are the sleeping berths to the side, and then there's a hallway that looks out the windows. And so I can't remember where if I the train had stopped or whatever. But I go and I just usually perch and look out the window and snap pictures. And I feel an arm go around my waist, and I turn to think it's uh, my friend, and it's a Russian neat from one of the other cars and he's smiling with his golden teeth and I'm like and he smells like vodka and I'm like we what and then it gets a little lewd here I guess but he basically like indicates let's go to the bathroom <laughs> and I'm like ah uh, and I got really nervous and I thought Oh, he's insulting me because I'm from the West. And then I get get into the bathroom. I'm naive. And I'm like, you just got hit on. But initially I was thinking he was trying to embarrass me. And I'm like, in the bathroom, I have the door locked. You know, it's just a single little room. And when you asked me if the train was clean, well, I had a lot of time to inspect that. I'm like locked into the bathroom and I don't know what to do. So I think he's just being kind of condescending. I'm like, okay, I'll just clean the bathroom while I'm standing here for 20 minutes. <laughs> and then I came out. And then once again, I go, my friend's like, where were you? I'm like, well, I was hiding in the bathroom. She's like, why? I'm like, well, there's two bathrooms on the train. They can go use the other. They can use the other uh, facility. But then I told her what happened. And I'm like, it's that guy in in the next car. Like he totally hit on me. <laughs> so I don't know. I must've had that pretty boy look or something back then with my Russian. But I, I was like, I don't, I don't feel real good about this, but it was funny now that I look back, but I was nervous then. Wow. Wow. Uh, any, anything else, any other anecdotes that you've, that you've got there? Well, let's see. I I can hear there's various bits of paper, so there's got to be more. You know, this is kind of back to our modern times, but, um, you know, I started to watch this show called The Americans because trying to learn about what really happened in the Cold War. Yeah. And I, I mentioned as a kid being kind of frightened, but, you know, I love the Olympics. It's like the Russians and the East Germans were the enemies, but 
there there was always it was always fun and then when i did actually go into the eastern bloc through russia i did always have a sense of paranoia it, it did feel like this orwellian like it, it felt like the 30s or the 40s but what i did notice is that the in spite of the military presence there i saw that civilians got along well with soldiers it seemed like they were friendly and accommodating um they were everywhere i was always fascinated with that whole look of the uniform and you know i just felt like russia was this huge sleeping giant and you know don't poke the bear um i remember going in irkutsk to an open air market and it was freezing and i remember seeing people that looked like eskimos like you know our alaskan eskimos and i started to think how close we are in a lot of ways um and i do remember at one point i told you that the kids would kind of follow us but i remember following this one kid and he was just staring at like there were props of different animals i guess you get your photograph near them or whatever but they had this bear propped up on this crude armature you know it's basically being impaled with rebar and this kid's you know it's the bear has its arms outstretched and it's it's a small bear and i'm looking at this kid as he's looking at this stuffed bear and i'm i'm thinking so this this is their mascot you know the bear and don't poke the sleeping bear and you know our, here's this shabby stuffed bear and this kid is just he's just mesmerized by it but i just like to tell that story because it kind of brought home that these are just people like we are but we have two political systems that are in contradiction to one another and i loved being in that tension but it was also kind of frightening and dreadful i i didn't always sleep real well thinking you know like when the friend got played tug of war with or um if we got separated and i did feel like god their technology is so behind it's so primitive in some ways but it was also like this is a a very powerful sleeping giant yeah and and i also i i felt cut off in a lot of ways it, it's you know i know this is about mostly the trans siberian but so i was basically locked out of information for 6 weeks and i had to get back to the west to understand what was going on in the place i had just been because of um you know th the news or whatever was happening i was kind of stuck i had to get back to the west to read the newspapers to find out what what i just had gone through and at that point the beginning of the tiananmen uprising was happening and we had been given some cues about that but we didn't understand until we got back and started drawing correlation between what some of these younger people were trying to say and what happened and when you're kind of in the middle of a history and you don't know it you know like I'm talking about this 30 years later but when you're in an experience that's becoming history you you have a strange vantage point like what's going on with this big change so what i experienced felt like a, a a sleeping change you know and then 
shortly thereafter, things started to change quickly. No, and you shared with me a amazing photo of the boy with the bear as well. Yes, yeah, so you know what I was talking about a little bit with that because that that's a great illustration of um, of what you've you've just described. Well, that's all we had time for, but there is a photo gallery of Mark's photos in the show notes and links to Mark's Instagram account where there are even more photos. The show notes are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 59. If you like what you're listening to, you can really help us by leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, our Facebook page, or with your favourite podcast provider. This really helps raise our profile and get new guests on the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners like yourselves continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. We're also on Twitter. Our handle is at Cold War Pod and Instagram, where we are at Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.